Good evening. Uh, no pressing announcements. And then, um, yeah, obviously everything's canceled this week that's involving me. So you can go have fun without me. Uh, you can even read the Bible without me, which I encourage you to do. Did you hear that? Okay. Because you went higher up. No, 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 no. No, I have to adjust. I only have so much room. I have two mics. And the other mic is weaker than the one mic you're concerned about. So I have to. Um, oh, yeah. Um, well, I guess that's in January. In January, we're going to take a Sunday school to go over. Uh, church stuff, right? The budget and uh, financial. I think that's the 16th or something. Mid, mid, mid January. Yeah. I have not. That's the 30th. January. January 30th, right? I don't remember the date. I remember the last Saturday of Sunday of January is the congregational meeting. So you all have a month, over a month warning, yes. And it's in the morning after the worship service. You'll have time to do what you need to do, but everyone will be here more than the evening, yes. Yes. I'm getting there, it's in my notes. Courtney will be coming before us uh, with a profession of faith on January 9th. She has been examined by the session. Um, and so we look forward to that, and she knows what she's getting into. <clears throat> Let us go to God in prayer and thanksgiving. Let us prepare our hearts accordingly. Praise ye the Lord, praise God his sanctuary, praise him for his mighty acts, praise him according to his excellence and greatness. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. Bow hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 141, 141.
us pray. We thank you for these words, Lord, as we are called to thank you, God, and praise you and ask for deliverance from wicked around us and bad influences upon us, and that we would follow your ways, Lord, even to the point of repenting when we are admonished by you through others in the body of Christ. Help us, we pray this evening, Lord, to draw nigh unto you, to be encouraged and to be admonished as needed by your spirit and your word this evening, Lord, and to be strengthened by you for our duties this week. In your name alone we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have hymn 317. 317.
Let's go before our Lord and Savior with prayer. We come as your people, God, as you call us before you, not only as individuals and as families, but as the body of Christ, to come before you in public worship and praise, to bring our prayers, Lord, and bring our praises as well. We thank you, God, and do praise you for Christ Jesus, who came in the flesh to live and die for us, the second member of the Holy Trinity. And we thank you, God, for sending us your Holy Spirit, the third member, Lord, into our hearts to draw us nigh unto you. We pray, God, before you, and we ask, Lord, that you continue to be with us and to be within us, Lord, and to draw us unto more holiness and sanctification, to be more like Jesus, and to be more purified, Lord, in accordance to your will. We pray, God, for our nation as those who are born and raised in a nation and of our nation, Lord, and our country and our state and our cities, Lord, that we can find ourselves in, God. We pray for their leadership, Lord, that they would repent and follow you, Lord, that they would do the right thing and enact godly laws, and that they would do the right thing and ignore wicked laws. We pray, God, that we would have Christian leaders, that you would give us access to Christian leaders, men that we could support and put into position, Lord, if able. Barring that, God, may we have men, Lord, still do the right thing regardless if they're Christian or not. And that can be done in your providence, we pray. We pray also, Lord, for upright laws to be enacted and to pass both at the federal and the state level and locally as well, God, uh, to preserve and protect us. Especially, again, we pray for your church to be protected and have the laws uh, to that end to be especially efficacious for Christians and their uh, 
employment and our body, and especially the truth and the doctrine that we believe in, Lord, and our practices. We ask God for repentance of our nation, repentance through our leaders, that they would lead the way, as we will see this evening, God, as we read through Zechariah, the prophecies of the New Testament era, and that, Lord, we would lead to the extent that we are leaders in our family, in our community, in our churches, Lord, with repentance if need be, that people may see the importance of what it means to hate our sin, forsake the world, and to follow you over and over again, God. It's a long life commitment. Help us, we pray, as a nation, as a state, as a county, as a city, as a community, as a family, Lord, to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, beginning with a change of mind towards any sins that we're making excuses for. We pray and ask God for those who are erring, and have been disciplined in our church or other churches in our presbytery, God, and for pastors and a general assembly and other presbyteries, Lord, that have been disciplined and church leaders, that you would soften their hearts, that they would come back with a full heart of repentance, that that is, they fully resolve to hate their sin, to fight against it, and to go down the right path of following you and your ways of righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that you would be with especially those that we know, family members and friends, God, that have named the name of Christ, that have confessed, that have been baptized, Lord, and they have fallen away and gone their own path, Lord. They cared not to do the things of the Lord, and they're making games and excuses or whatever it is, Lord. And it hurts our heart, it rips it out, and they step all over it, Lord. And they seem so indifferent. We ask, Lord, that you would bring them to the end of themselves, that they would be the end of the rope, that would find themselves with no way out except for you. And Lord, I know sometimes that means very hard hardships upon their life, difficulty and suffering, Lord. But if that brings them to the Lord, that is our prayer. If that's your will, that is our prayer. We ask God for our education in our life, that we would take seriously again and renew ourselves and our commitments to learning your word, to reading the Bible, to praying before you, to being educated about the wonders of who you are, what you've done for us, that is theology. And we ask God not only for our knowledge of you and your holy ways and the saving of our soul, Lord, and the call of holiness, but also for the things of this world, which are also important for where we are, and our vocations of calling in life, God, to learn our histories, to learn what it means to be a good voter and be informed in our politics and society, and whatever else, Lord, for our job, for our neighborhood, for our house, for our car, all these various and sundry things that we, Lord, don't realize as a form of school. We have to learn these things. Although many of the things we find interesting, Lord, help us to learn the things that are not interesting but are still important in our lives. We pray, God, to have a continued life of education, both at home and in the church, to the extent that the education is useful so that we can become better members of the kingdom of God, more useful members of your household of faith. Be with us, we pray, this week, Lord. Watch over and again to protect us during this busy time up up until uh, this Saturday, God, when it, People are all over the place, all over the town, Lord, and it slows us down. It can be dangerous. Protect us, God. Watch over those who are on vacation and going on vacation soon. Be with us, we pray. Help us to be encouraged day by day, Lord, to do our duties and to not to give up because, Lord, you have not given up on us. In the name alone we pray. Amen. Let us turn into our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. All right, we can do an offering too. That would be good. Ties and offerings, please. Let us rise. 
sings forth. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We do praise you, God, and we honor you as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the blessed three in one. And we ask God again that we would be blessed to the end that we can give even more tithes and offerings and that they would be used mightily for your kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now we can go to Zechariah chapter 12. We're back in the book of Zechariah. Traditionally, they would preach um, New Testament in the morning and the Old Testament in the evening in the Reformed churches, at least many of them. Verses 10 through 14. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. And I will pour out the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning in Hadar-Ramen and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves. And all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Let us pray. Here, God, we read of your blessing upon your people prophesied in the Old Testament, upon the house of Israel, which we know to be all those who are circumcised of heart, that is, those who are born again, and how you will pour upon them, Lord, the spirit of grace, as we know, and of supplication, of repentance, of a crying out before you, Lord, of those who mourn for the sins they see that brought you to the cross. We ask, God, that our hearts would continue to be moved by this truth and to be thankful, Lord, for the blessing of the gift of repentance in our lives. Help us, Lord, to continue to live a life of repentance and also to speak to one another and to those, especially who are in authority, that we are all called to have days of repentance, Lord, have a national day of repentance even, and continue repentance individually as we have sins we struggle against. In your name alone we pray. Amen. So here we are in Zechariah, nearing the end. It's basically divided into two parts, uh, two books and thoughts going on here. In this latter part of Zechariah, we have a lot more prophecies of Christ. This is why uh, often commentators describe Zechariah as the Old Testament gospel. The gospel in the Old Testament form, using the Old Testament language and description of sacrifices and the language of the household of faith and the like, and calling of mourning and of redemption and of cloaks of righteousness round about them, right, and the priesthood and all that. Old Testament figures, metaphors, and language to describe the reality of salvation that we know and its fullness in the New Testament era. Prophecies of Christ to come. This book has many of them, and we are in yet another one here, as I think many of you recognize here one of these verses and we will get to that in a minute. 
First, we will go through these points here to go over what is obviously what this passage is about, which is a passage of repentance, of mourning, of supplication, of crying out and petitioning God for mercy is the implication. Because they have felt and seen the effects of their sin. And so it's important, therefore, to define repentance and what it is in our Christian life. It is, as we see here, uh, a power from on high, first of all. Verse 10, And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Where does this supplication come from, this pleading for mercy? And they will mourn. That's the effect of it, right? They will see him whom they have pierced, and they are mourn as though they had lost their only son. That's obviously not a mourning of fear, but a mourning of repentance and of grief, something dear to them. Thus, although not the point of the sermon nor the text, an implied faith in the Messiah. Those who believe in the Messiah, who rely upon the Messiah, do not mourn for the death of the Messiah. They do rely upon him, do mourn for the death of the Messiah. Those who do not rely upon him, those who do not care about Jesus, will not mourn for his death other than perhaps it's sad to see a human die. That's different. This is mourning as though he were his first, they were his firstborn. He was. And Jesus, of course, is the firstborn of many. The point here, however, is repentance. Before we get to the idea of repentance in particular, what is the origin of repentance? And it comes from God on high. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. I, God Almighty, who changes and moves the hearts of men. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord like water in the channels, moving about as he wills. That is our God to whom we have to deal with. And he can do it as only he can. The spirit of grace and supplication, of grace and of supplication, that is, the spirit is a source of grace. It is from him and him alone. Supplications come from him, as it were. It's not native to the sinful heart that cares nothing of the Lord. Grace, of course, is unmerited favor upon sinners. Supplications is a humble petition, a shorthand for repentance, because those who repentance bring their supplication and petitions and cry out to God for mercy. As we see here, they mourn, they grieve, or something terrible over the sacrifice of Jesus. And, of course, sin is always in that context. They mourn for the effects of their sin that brought the Savior to earth to die for them. So it's a cry of mercy and pardon here. It comes from God above, who is the Father of light and the giver of good gifts. Repentance is indeed a good gift, and therefore it is from the Father above, who gives gifts to men as he wills, for he is the origin of all good things in this world. The best being salvation. Brothers and sisters, salvation. Repentance must come from him. It can come from no other. There are several parallel passages to this language of the Spirit of God being poured on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Note the language. This is again in God's providence. This morning I talked about baptism which is a sprinkling or pouring on high. I didn't talk about the mode. It's not immersion, but a pouring as prophesied in the Old Testament or a sprinkling as seen in the symbolism of the Old Testament, sprinkling of the blood upon God's people and setting them apart, for example, with Moses. And here we have the language of pouring on the house of David. What? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of grace and of mercy and of supplication, which is part of that mercy and repentance. 
We have several Old Testament passages that talk of this prophecy of the future, of a new deluge, as it were, of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era. Not as though he never was poured upon them of old. He was indeed, for they were saved. They trusted. They believed. They repented. That's the only way they could do it, is with God's mercy upon them. But rather, these point forward to an era in which it will shine forth across the world. I mean, imagine again how amazing it would be to see that this small sliver of land, smaller than New England, is going to encompass the whole world, the church. That's all they had for 1,800 years with Abraham, about 1,800 B.C. Just that sliver of land. The rest of the world's in darkness. And God says, I'm going to bring a new work. Not new in the sense of it never happened to you, but it's, it's to be so amazing, it's like a whole new heaven and earth. You see that prophecy in the language in Isaiah, talking about the New Testament era, but also, also ultimately about heaven. That is literally the new heaven and new earth when Christ comes back the second time. So we are a foretaste of that period and era, and that, hence this strong language. I'll give you a sample. Uh, we have Isaiah 32, 44, 59, Jeremiah 31, 31. You're all familiar with that. As Ezekiel 36, another similar passage to Jeremiah where God says, I will change your heart. I will give you the spirit. I will replace your heart and write my law in your heart. Uh, Ezekiel 39, Joel 2. There, that's picked up as we know in Acts by Peter. He says, Joel has prophesied this. I'm telling you, it's happening right now. And so this too, they will look on him whom they have pierced is being fulfilled with Christ Jesus and the spirit of supplication upon us. We read in Isaiah 55, 20, The Redeemer will come to Zion, and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon them, my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time forevermore. He comes to those who turn from the transgression. So the prophecy, in other words, there is speaking of the future turning of the remnant of God, that is, repentance. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Here it's more explicit, not just repentance. All those who repent are part of this great revival as a picture of the Old Testament looking to the future. But Ezekiel is more explicit. It says, I will give you my spirit. This is why you will repent. This Because you'll have a change of heart. As only God can bring a change of heart. Because it's like a stone that will not respond. Hardened. Rather, the spirit will come upon you. And your heart will be a heart of flesh that is a living heart, a responsive heart. So, this is but of a line of other prophecies of the future repentance of God's people and of the giving of the Spirit in greater measure. And we see a fulfillment explicitly of this verse, right? And they will look on him whom they have pierced. And John 19.37, as you know, and again, John writes the apostle, and again, another scripture says, they looked on him whom they have pierced. John tells his audience, this is nothing new, but was prophesied of old, that the Jews 
time of Jesus, will see and look up to him. And as we know, many of them repented the day of Pentecost. They were Jews that repented, thousands of them, in the book of Acts. They looked upon him whom they had pierced. As we know, they piercing the Lord was not their hands per se. Those are the hands of the Roman soldiers. Rather, the sins brought him to the cross. That's what it's speaking of. And they feel that shame. They feel that guilt. They realize what the Son of God had done, what the Messiah had come to do for them and for us, brothers and sisters. We who look to him in faith. And we see that. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. The language of looking is but a metaphor for faith. We see that picked up by John who says that a few times. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. The Spirit is poured upon us. We have hearts of repentance and then we look and believe. All in one passage here. You believe, you repent, you look. It is you indeed, but it is God who has opened our hearts and empowered us so that we do mourn for our sins. Now, the confession talks about repentance, not just in the shorter and larger catechism, but we have an entire chapter in the confession itself, chapter 15, with several paragraphs describing what repentance is, the fruits of repentance, what it is not, and the like. And paragraph 2 we read, By it, that is repentance unto life, because there are different types of repentance, we talk about we don't want you know hypocrites in, in America or hypocrites in the church. And I tell you, I'd rather have a bunch of nice, friendly, unbelieving hypocrites who are going to repent for social faux pas and even sins, even if they're not Christians, although I'd rather have them be Christians in society, to be sure. In the church, I want them all to be Christians. But there are and many unbelievers who repent. And it's a real repentance, but it's not unto life. They're just, they're sorry. They don't want to you know, smear your name. They sin against their parents. And they see these as sins of sorts and something wrong. But it's never before God for their sins unto life. Eternal life, of course, is what it's talking about. So, by it, that is repentance unto faith, unto life, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger of sin, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sin. Not just the consequences, but what sin is as contrary to the holy nature and righteousness of the law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, so such as penitent, that is, repentant, to, so grieves for and hates his sin, turns from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Now that's a mouthful. I'll just cover a few here to highlight what we need to hear in our society. Not necessarily what you all need to hear per se, as though I'm thinking I got to really, you guys really repent today or not, although you can ask yourself that question. Sometimes we play games with ourselves as Christians to be sure, or we're just confused. Uh, but there's a lot of confusion in the American church, it seems to me, of late, in my experience, about repentance and how it is easy to kind of strip it down to. Something easy to digest, as it were, to get away with is probably a better way of putting it. Uh, One thing to highlight here, repentance is from the filthiness and odiousness of sin. Not just the danger or the effects of it, right? I like to use the metaphor of the kid who gets his hand caught in the cookie jar. I'm sorry. 
Please don't take away my allowance. Please don't spank me. And we know many a kid, perhaps you were one of those, who were repentant because you got caught. You don't want the consequences, the dangers of sin. And this reminds us, that is one reason why you repent. That shouldn't be the only thing. Not only the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of the sin. How dare I do that to my parents who birthed me, went through all that pain and misery my mom went through for me, when they could have just killed me in America because it's easy to do. How could I do that to them? That's what it's talking about, the odiousness of sin. And not just the parents, obviously, but to God himself, the creator of heaven and earth who feeds you and gives you life and air and sun and clothing and food for your belly. How offensive that is to sin before him. Not just the consequences are bad. That should be a motivation. That's fine. But also a greater motivation that it's filthy and odiousness of sins. Also, we have a description here in the confession, which, of course, summarizes well the Bible. Hates his sins. We use the word abhor in our oath. That's the word. We don't like to hear the word hate in America. We're all about love. Both political parties are about love. I know we always think it's the left, but the right says the same thing. This is 10 years behind, right? They just use the old language of love. Nobody wants to talk about hate. There is a place for hate. One of those places is to hate the devil and hate your sin. And you've heard before, hate doesn't mean something irrational. It means a, an utter rejection and a denial. Even to your emotions, you're just angry. I don't want it. I want it away from me. It's repulsive. Upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, this is done in the context of the gospel call, and the, so you're going to cry out for a supplication upon the mercies of Christ. And that gives us, of course, into the movement of the soul of faith. So this isn't faith proper, this is repentance. And so it's under the rubric or the apprehension of realizing there is grace out there. You haven't grabbed it yet, that's faith. That's relying and trusting upon the Messiah, not repentance. But repentance is done in that context of the hope of deliverance from your sin, right? The apprehension and a supplication, as we read here, crying out in petition, Lord, save me from my sins. And then they will look on me whom they have pierced the apprehension of his mercy and recognizing him. Also, repentance is not only hating sin for sin itself, it's odious to them, but also purposing to walk with the Lord in righteousness. It is a change of direction. The word in the Greek is narrowly and specifically a change of mind. I believe this, I no longer believe this, now I believe that. And of course, the consequence of that should be a change in the direction of your life. If you change your mind, you should be changed in the direction of your life. I want Jesus, I want to do the right thing. That's part of repentance. Even if you can't always, of course, get the right thing, to be sure we are still sinners, saved by His grace. Psalm 119 Verse 59, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. That's one description of repentance. To turn away from sin and unto righteousness. To start a new life again. Or just 
the simple sin you have in your life. I mean, we, that's why I remind us, our calling as Christians is a calling of repentance and faith, yes, daily, because we will sin. And when we sin, we repent of it, and we stop, and we do something else. We do acts of righteousness. One of those may be, of course, restitution for the sin that we did. Leaving sin and pursuing righteousness. The summary of repentance, hating it, pursuing righteousness, of apprehending the mercy of Christ and supplicating before him. And all these descriptions, I think, is well done here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 is a, a good text on repentance because of all the descriptors there, all in one text, because Paul writes here with such zeal himself and such excitement, it seems, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. For observe this very thing, Paul says, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, right? You just didn't give up. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, presumably against the sin, what fear, presumably before God, what vehement desire, presumably to do the right thing, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. That's the kind of repentance God wants of his people, and our whole life is in that vein. To one degree or another, I know zealousness and uh, vehement desire are expressed differently in different people. You don't have to run around being excitable or something. Some people are, and that's fine. But you know in your heart that you hate sin, and you want to do the right thing, and you will not give up. Although repentance be not rested in, this is chapter 3 of the same paragraph, uh, Paragraph 3 in the same chapter, chapter 15 of the Confession, on repentance, describing something here, although repentance be not, uh, be not to be rested in. That is, it is not that which you depend upon. It's not the ticket that gets you to heaven as such. That's the righteousness of Christ. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin. Repenting does not satisfy God's divine wrath against sin, and as Christ who does, or any cause of the pardon thereof, anything else, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ Jesus. This is important because some people teach your repentance is your righteousness. Your repentance is actually the ticket that gets you to heaven. No, you are called to repent. You're supposed to repent regardless. Everyone's called to repent. They are sinners before the just God of the universe. They must repent. And supplication of the heart says, I am wrong, wrong, wrong. Do with me as you will. It's not the basis of bringing them to heaven. It's Christ. And so they must repent and believe in Jesus, and Jesus will get them to heaven. Ezekiel 36, 31, Then you will remember your evil ways, God prophesies of the future age, and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. There's a good one for repentance. I see my sins and I see my wretchedness. I believe we need more of that in the church today across this nation. Not for your sake I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you. Not because of your repentance per se, although I require of it of you anyways. You have to do it, but it's not the moral grounds or the reason, uh, formally speaking, of the cause of pardon, but God's free grace in Christ Jesus by faith alone. So, it's a need of the hour, as I've already suggested and talked about. The demand of repentance. Men ought not to content themselves with general repentance, 
we read in our confession, but it's every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly. Not just vague accusations that we've run across the last decade now in the American public scene, as you know, in our politics and social issues and whatnot, but particular sins, particularly. And if there are particular sins and particular laws that are wicked, they ought to point them out and verify that sin so that they can repent of them. And do it indeed with a great mourning. We read that here in verse 11. That day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Often in the Old Testament prophecies it speaks of the great change, the great age of change between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era as as that day. It's a sudden change. And it was, as far as history is concerned, 33 years of Christ and the last three years of his ministry is a big change over thousands of years, isn't it? There shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem that is among God's people like the morning of Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo, and it goes on describing uh, such morning. And that great morning there, perhaps, uh, describes, uh, refers to the people of God mourning the death of King Josiah. We're not exactly sure, but we think that's what it probably is. They certainly knew. But the point for us, of course, is it's not just a small little passing mourning of sin, but a great mourning of sin, of great grieving against sin and hatred of their own sin. And today, the kind of wickedness we have in America, brothers and sisters, the wickedness that's been going on before I was born, needs great mourning and grieving indeed. America is full of wickedness and sin among her leaders, among our laws, among the people who want such wicked leaders, in thought, word, and deed. And churches need to call them repentance instead of tickling their ears, instead of watering it down, instead of being afraid of offending them and having the book thrown at them, as it were. So pray for the churches to make that bold call, because the world will say, you need to repent. You say, we have repented. My conscience is clear. I confess Christ. I've been baptized. You have not. You must repent. Don't let them turn it on you, because that's what they do over and over again. They find a scandal in the church. See that? You guys should be embarrassed of that scandal. Sure, it's embarrassing. God will vindicate his name. You need to repent. Simple as that. Encouragement to repentance is what we need to tell the world and for ourselves to the extent that we have participated in any kind of serious sins in the church or turned a blind eye, perhaps, or whatever the case is. But there's also encouragement in repentance. And the call of repentance has a call of encouragement. This is what it is. As there is no sin so small, the confession tells us, paragraph 4 of chapter 15, but it deserves damnation. That's a message that we ought to make clear in the law of God and preaching the law, right, to the world. You think it's a little thing? It's not a little thing. So there is no sin so great that it cannot, that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. The greatest sin will not bar you from heaven if you truly repent and believe. That's the good news of call of repentance. We need to bring it far and wide to the church and to the world. You have your sins as Christians. You struggle with your sins. It feels like they'll never go away, brothers and sisters. It will go away in heaven. Right now, you just keep repenting and believing and getting up again and doing little baby steps and fighting the sin and doing the right thing. God, as your Father, through the blood of Christ Jesus, will forgive you. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. 
we read here in verse 37 of Acts 2, which, again, we saw this morning. Now, when they heard this, the the Jews, listening to Peter, what did they hear? He said, you crucified Jesus. (laughs) That's what he said. He said, you're murderers. They heard this, and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We see our sins. There's a supplication right here. It's a fulfillment of this prophecy, brothers and sisters, here in this text, and in your life as well. Across the world, wherever believers repent, whatever new converts cry out for mercy, what shall we do? What is our, this is our supplication. We cry out before you as we have seen him whom we have pierced. Then Peter said to them, what? Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And the rest of the text here is we covered chapter verses 10 and verse 11, and then 12, 13, and 14, we have a description of this repentance, repentance practiced by the groups, a mourning land, a grieving land. The general statement, as I have a summary here from a commentary, I think is helpful. The general statement of the mourning, verse 12, is followed by the particulars, Uh, 12b through 14. The mourning includes the royal house of David and the family of his son Nathan, not Nathan the prophet, it's his son. Also the house of Levi and the family of Shemaiah, the son of Gershon, the son of Levi, as well as all the rest. So you have the leadership repenting and all the other families repenting. Both the political leadership of of King David and his household and of course the sons of Levi the religious, the church part, repenting as well. And this is why you also know it's a prophecy, because David's dead by now. (laughs) It's the house of David. It's all of them and his children and his children's children. It's the future that it's pointing to. Reminder that the ancient Near East, and indeed uh, most on all nations up until, again, uh, the Westernization and atheism of the last couple hundred years of the so-called Enlightenment, you had national-level repentance. That is, the leaders led by example and grieved and repented, and they they grieved by decree. Remember Nineveh? Pagan city-state, Nineveh, repented, and God held back judgment on them. Isn't that amazing? How much more would he hold back for his people? In early America, we had decrees of days of fasting and prayer, as you remember. I've covered that in Sunday school class, where they named the name of Christ Jesus during the Revolutionary War. We need national-level repentance, and that's what I prayed for, and I continue to pray for. And, and as we know, um, Luann always brings up, because it's important. The morning royalty, the grieving royalty, both the kingly and priestly line, as I pointed out, a reminder that national repentance includes and is often led historically by leaders. It's nigh impossible, unfortunately, in our multicultural society, because if one leader calls for a day of repentance, five other religious subgroups in America will say, what in the world are you doing confusing religion and politics? And so our laws, and we have conflicting uh, religions and conflicting subcultures that really hurt our, to speak as a man, our, cult- our, our country this way, and what we are called to do, what we used to do. To whom much is given, much is required. Leaders can do good or bad much more than you can. I know we like to push this American fable in many ways that, you know, one person can make a difference.
Americans. You can stand firm and tall and your vote will make... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not, not often. Not the John Waynes and the Clint Eastwoods, they're just movies. The one person who can is a man with power, a president, a judge. They can do those things, like a John Wayne or a Clint Eastwood, push back against wickedness and make a stand that the world will see and can follow. We need to pray for such leaders, both in the church as needed and in society, which is greatly needed. And they have a greater responsibility to repent to the extent that they have participated in perpetuating wickedness in society or in the church. And to lead by example. National leaders should repent. That's the idea of what we call corporate or national repentance. Not that they're repenting for you in your place or your stead. You still have to repent. But they're initiating it and they have a greater responsibility, of course, as leaders. Morning family. So you have the morning royalty and the morning church, morning uh, grieving uh, social leaders is probably a better word for that, both the political and the religious. And then grieving families, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. And this is interesting, right? It says, it's this repetition here, wives by themselves, wives by themselves, wives by themselves. Why the wives by themselves? And I think the suggestion given by one commentator is the genuineness of the repentance is what that highlights. That is, it's not the male head of the household who's demanding it, because he's the head of the household, we're going to grieve and repent, but even the wives are agreeing to it on their own accord, as it were. They're not just following their husband's lead. They should follow their husband's lead, of course, but they, they too realize and feel their own sins. They're not just imitating the, the men out of fear, but genuinely, genuinely mourn as well. Thirdly, repentance practiced by individuals, which is in this list. You have this corporate prayer and repentance by the leaders and by the people, but also a listing of individuals, the families, the families by themselves, and the wives by themselves. Even the corporate is individual, of course, and leaders are individual and do not repent for you. Although the repentance, leaders' repentance, may mitigate harm upon the nation or upon the church. That's true. Turn away from sin begins with a change of mind, as I pointed out, the fleeing from and persisting away from. It's not temporary. It's not fleeting. It's not a flash in the pan repentance, but it's an ongoing uh, desire of our life, movement of our hearts whenever we see sin. Convinced of the transgression of, God, of God's law as wrong in and of itself and fleeing it and pursuing righteousness. That's the call of every Christian every day. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will mourn. And we have mourned. And more will mourn. And that's a good thing. Because it is a gift of God. This too is an encouragement. Although the call of repentance is there, the call is there with the power of God for his people to repent. And thus we pray God to grant repentance to men as well. In 2 Timothy 2.14 we read, If God preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. With God, all such things are possible. And as long as your brother, your daughter, your father are not believers, but they're alive, as long as they're alive, you can pray that God would grant them repentance. Pray that God would grant this nation repentance and grant the families repentance and grant the individuals repentance. 
Pray for genuine personal repentance to continue in your lives as we flee from sin and seek out Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. We ask God that indeed your spirit will continue to move in our lives, Lord, not that we are mourning every day and can get nothing done. Uh, rather, Lord, that we acknowledge the sin. Sometimes it's a small, simple thing. Yes, that's wrong. I'm done. I'm out of here. And we just change and do something different, Lord. And other times it is heart-wrenching and it lasts for several days. But whatever the case is, God, may we continue to have genuine repentance and hatred of sin and a turning to Christ Jesus and an enlivening of our faith above all. In the name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. Hymn 278, 278.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Thank you.